So I've been wanting to speak about this for a while. Um, I'm pretty excited to be able to, but today's sermon is called Dealing with Your Own Objections About God's Love for You. And odds are you have some. All right, there's probably going to at least be two parts to this. There might be three parts. Probably three. I probably just should go ahead and do three. Um, but today, we're going to talk about, we're going to like define our struggle with God's love. We're going to talk about why it's important we deal with it and how we should view God's love. So the first thing, defining the problem, it's not necessarily that we harbor like objections and in our intellectual beliefs about God's love. Most of us probably don't. Some of us do. I might struggle with that from time to time. Don't feel bad if you do. It's just something that needs worked on if you do. And you probably do. Um, but what I'm really talking about is we tend to have gaps between like what we intellectually think in our minds and what we like actually believe in our hearts. We tend to have those in a lot of areas, actually. That's part of the sin problem. That's part of the human problem. And one of the major areas we have that in is our beliefs about God's love and God's faithfulness. So you can acknowledge something in your mind but not actually believe it in your heart. And this happens usually because your heart, which... So I need to try to define what I mean by your heart. Your heart, your spirit, who you are at the core... Like, you can think thoughts in your spirit. It's not just your mind that thinks thoughts. Your spirit, your heart, who you are at the core is a thinking entity. Your heart thinks thoughts. The core of your being thinks thoughts apart from just what your intellectual mind thinks. And those thoughts determine a lot about you. And if in your heart of hearts you have objections about God's love... Um, they're like thoughts. So before we get into it, I just want to like really emphasize, you can't, and those thoughts, like I've talked about before, uh, determine what your feelings are. Your feelings always follow your thoughts at the end of the day. But specifically the thoughts that you hold in your heart. And you can't... Um, let your feelings about God be an authority in your life. They can't be how you determine or how you discern like truth from non-truth. Because since what you feel is based on what you think, the analogy I always use, if someone comes in dressed as a bear, you'll be scared because you think there's a threat. You feel scared because you think there's a threat. Your feelings always follow your thoughts. But if you let your thoughts follow your feelings, you're infinitely looping. Your, thought, your feelings might be right, they might happen to be right, and they might happen to be wrong, but they're by no means an indicator of reality. All right, so first thing we're going to get into is why we need to deal with this issue, or why it's important we deal with this issue. I have a, a list of... Um, but the first one is it, it majorly affects the quality of your relationship with God. 
how you perceive God's love hugely affects every area of your life in major ways. And number one is it majorly affects the quality of your relationship with God. It'll affect your worship. Um, I often struggle. I'm, I've more been getting over this recently. That's part of why I'm preaching on this now. But, um, but like I frequently struggle with condemnation and just fearing like God's always mad at me or thinking that to some degree, thinking God's really mad at me. And, uh, and that really affects my desire to worship. Like who wants to come into the presence of like an angry, not happy God? Like if you think you're going to think or feel that way about God and still want to worship, it's not gonna happen. Like you'll have some desire to worship, but like not really. It also affects how highly you think of God. Like one of God's most glorious attributes is his self-sacrificing love. But you know, if, it's, if he doesn't actually really love us that much, that's really gonna affect worship. That's gonna affect how highly we think of him and how glorious we see him. It also really affects prayer. Like if God doesn't, if we have doubts or issues about God's love for us, why would we have much trust in him to answer prayer. You probably won't even pray that much if you struggle with it a lot. Another thing it'll affect that people might not think much about is it affects your emotional closeness to God. So God made us to fellowship with him and we're gonna get into that later on in this message and talk about that a good bit. And um, so God made us as spirit, or spiritual, and he is spirit, and his spirit indwells in us, and we have a relationship, we have a fellowship. God wants us to have a spiritual, relational closeness to him. But if, if we have objections about God's love for us, that will be greatly hindered. If I thought my wife didn't love me, we wouldn't be very close. It also will just affect your faith as a whole. And faith is a major component to the Christian life as a whole. But if we struggle with the objections we have about God's love for us, then um, you know, why, why trust God? That's gonna greatly hinder your trust in him. It's gonna greatly hinder your faith in several areas. The second way in which it majorly affects your life is that um, it's directly correlated to how grace-based you're able to live. So we all intellectually believe, you know, God loves us a lot. He's God. But most of it, we all have levels of how much we actually believe it and how much you actually believe it because we all think it intellectually. But um, how much you actually believe it really determines how grace-based you're able to live. Because if, if God's not gracious, if you, don't, if you struggle with not really seeing him as gracious, why should you be gracious to other people? Why should you be gracious to yourself? You won't have a reason to. You won't have motivation to. You, you basically just won't. How we see, how we know God's love, how we experience it directly correlates to how grace-based we're able to live, and that's a major issue. 
how well we know God's love also affects how much we're able to love God and others. Let's take a quick look at 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. John's view of God's love and the love that we're supposed to have as Christians, which the whole law can be summed up in, is we love because God first loved us. So that makes that pretty important. I also want to point out Luke 7:47. This is when Jesus was talking to one of the Pharisees um, at dinner at his house. And the, um, the one woman was washing his feet with her hair. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. So how we, how we know God's love, what we actually believe about it, will really affect um, how much we love God and others. And I, I really want people to start thinking about, like, we all know that we think God loves us. We all think it intellectually. But I really want you to take a good look at, like, what you actually believe about it. The next thing I want to mention, um, what you believe about God's love really affects your entire emotional life as a person. There's like four or five ways. Um, It really affects how much you struggle with anxiety or fear. You know, we'll quickly take a look at 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I struggle with anxiety, like social anxiety, sometimes anxiety about this and that. But, um, but it's worse on days if I'm feeling more condemned or struggling more with God's love. It also will affect you emotionally with like rejection issues. Feeling unloved just makes people sad. It's unpleasant. It affects like your entire relational life. And overall, rejection issues undoubtedly lead to depression. Like if a person just believes they're unloved, and like there's no greater way to be unloved than to not be loved by God, you know, that will lead to depression. And I think it it also affects how much people struggle with anger. Um, In my experience, how much um, I struggle with rejection is tied to how much I struggle with anger. And also, God's love is a good example of controlling anger. So this really affects like major areas of your life more than you think it does if you haven't thought about it before. The next reason it's important that we know God's love well is because um, God wants us to. God wants us to know him because God created us to know him. So that's, that makes it pretty important. Let's take a quick look at John 17, 1 through 3. So this is when Jesus is praying the high priestly prayer right before he's about to be crucified. This is a prayer for the whole church right before he's about to be crucified. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life to know God. It's not just some vague existence like out in the ethos somewhere. Like God created us to know him. And God, if we don't know God's love, that's like majorly missing something. And also, we'll, we'll take a look more at this passage later, but Paul in Ephesians, one of the things he prays for the Ephesians is that they would come to really get to know the love of God. Mm-hmm. The reason Paul was praying that is because that's God's desire for the Ephesians. That's God's desire for his church as a whole. Mm-hmm. And if, if, it, if God wants us to know him, if that's a major part of why he created us, then it's our job to seek to know him well. It's not something you just be passive about and it just happens. Uh, it's like David said in the Psalms, you, you said, seek my face, and I said, Lord, your face, Lord, I will seek. So like... Um, The main point I just want to get to with this sermon, even if you don't get anything else, we have a lot more to get to, so hopefully you do get other things. But um, this is a problem you have to do something about. This is something we struggle with, and this is something you have to do something about. You can't just, oh, I struggle with knowing God's love. Shove it in the corner, moving on with life. Because it's an idea that can get built into our minds, and if it does get built there, it doesn't just go away in a day. You have to fight against it. If you're not, if you struggle with it, especially if you struggle with it a lot, and I, I know a number of us do, if you're not doing anything about it and you don't have any plans, if you just let it defeat you in life, that's a real problem. Because if you do, you're just going to go on struggling with the issues it causes. You're going to go on struggling with a bad worship life, with depression, with rejection, with anxiety. All right, uh, quick prelude. So one of, the, one of the main things we're going to talk about today is how we should see God's love. And then next sermon, next time I speak, we're going to get into, can you turn this down a bit? I'm getting a bit of feedback. Next time we're going to, okay. Um, and then so next time we're going to talk about, So this time, one of the main things we're going to talk about is um, how we should view God's love. And then next time, we're going to address like specific objections we tend to have and what those objections are and how to address them. But uh, before we can really get into how we should see God's love, there's one thing I need to address, kind of a preface. Um, God's love for his children is not the same for not his children. 
So I want to get into why I decided to give this as a preface. I don't, so there is a difference and we'll get into that, but I wouldn't want to, um, to mislead people into thinking that, um, that God's love for them is something it's not. And we'll get into what the difference is. So first, I just want to point out, not everyone is a child of God. I know some people think that, but it's not true. <laughs> we'll just get into two verses that point that out. Uh, John eight forty four. This is when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar, the father of lies. I don't think Jesus thought they were sons of God. Doesn't seem like it. And then let's take a quick look at John 1, 11 through 13 talking about Jesus. Uh, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To become children of God. You don't become something you were already before. Who were born not of blood, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So just to throw that out there, um, not everyone is a child of God. So let's clarify um, what the difference is. So the first thing I want to point out, God is willing to condemn non-believers in judgment. He doesn't want to, but he's willing to, but he'll never condemn his children. I kind of got a little graph. My wife gave me a great idea. Graph <laughs> makes it all better. Uh, <laughs> But um, yeah, that's, that's a pretty major thing. I also want to take a quick look at um, Romans 1.8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, the second point that I have in the difference is God still has wrath towards unbelievers or towards those who aren't his children, even though he also has love for them. But he has zero wrath towards those who are his children. Um, John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. But also... Don't get confused about it. God still loves non-believers. His wrath abides on them, but God still loves uh, those who aren't his children. 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4 says, this is, so Paul's talking about the request he just made to Timothy to teach the church um, that Timothy's at, asking that they pray for all people. And after that, he goes on to say, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. God says throughout the scriptures, he doesn't delight in the death of anyone. He doesn't delight in condemning people, but he's holy and he's just, and that demands something. 
God definitely still loves those who aren't his children, but it's not the same as his love for those who are his children. Uh, So I've got three more points about that. Um, Another thing, God acts in the favor of his children in a way or in ways he doesn't act towards non-believers. I want to point out Romans 8.28. And we know that those who love God, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. But we know from 1 John, anyone who is a child of God does love God, and all of them are called according to his purpose. So what this really means is for all actual Christians, for all children of God, all things work together for good. There's no, there's no such thing as a child of God who isn't called according to God's purpose. This always applies to all Christians, period. And throughout the scriptures, we see God doing things on behalf of his people that he doesn't do on behalf of other people. God does great and amazing things for people who aren't his children, but it's, it's not quite the same. Another thing I want to point out that I think is interesting that um, might be easy to miss when you're reading the scriptures, God considers the well-being of his people as his own well-being. But he, It's specifically about his own people. I'm going to quickly read um, Matthew 25, 31 through 40. So this is Christ talking about um, the judgment. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry? and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when, um, when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Some people overlook the my brothers. Christ isn't saying anything you do to another human you've done to me. Christ says anything you do to the least of anybody who's a child of God, you've done to Christ. And Christ stands by this statement. He says to Paul in Acts 9-4 when he meets, uh, or Saul, when he meets Saul on the road to Emmaus, and falling on the ground, Saul heard a loud voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? God considers, Christ considers the well-being of his church his own well-being. That's a pretty big deal. And then lastly, God commands us to do good to everyone, but especially to other believers. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 6.10, 
So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So, um, so if you're new here, or if you are listening and you think, I'm not a Christian, or um, what does it mean to be a child of God, that's something you want to talk to someone about. That's something that... Um, you need to know about. Because if, if you're not a child of God, then God still loves you, but, um, but his wrath abides on you, and that needs dealt with. It's something you can't just afford to leave be. And if you, if you are a Christian, but you struggle with doubts of your salvation, that's something to work out. You shouldn't go on struggling with doubts forever. A lot of us have false doubts, and there can also be real doubts. But, um, but if doubts about your salvation or doubts about whether or not you're a Christian are something you struggle with, that's something you should be talking to your discipleship group leader about. Mm-hmm. All right, the main part of today's message. The end goal, what we should believe about God's love. So next week we're gonna talk about the objections we have about God's love, but um, like, what's the point in talking about that if we don't even know what we should believe about God's love? You gotta start with what you should believe before you address what you shouldn't believe. So, um, it's important that we know what our, we have an end goal of this is according to the scriptures what I should believe about God's love for me. So um, we have three key elements. Let's see, there's like four points. My bullet point system ended up kind of weird on this one, but it all makes sense at the end. <laughs> but um, but I would say there's three key elements of God's love for his children, and it's important that you understand all three of these. And all three of them fall under the category of God's love for his children. So element number one, it's a self-sacrificing desire for your well-being. John? Okay. <laughs> I thought he had a question. All right. Um, so actually, first I'm just gonna list these, but then we'll talk about them individually. So number one, a self-sacrificing desire for your well-being. Number two, a fatherly enjoyment of who you are as a person. And number three, desire to have personal fellowship with you. So let's get into the first element, self-sacrificing desire for your well-being. Um, there's a few verses that I wanna point this out. Hopefully. This is just obviously enough of a theme in the scriptures that we all see it, but I want to point it out anyways. Um, let's look at Romans, Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, so that's self-sacrificing, like, while we were enemies of God, we hated God, we did nothing good for him, and we had no desire to. And he died for us. God has great desire for your well-being. 
your well-being might not be what you think it is, but, um, but we'll get into that in next sermon. But God has a self-sacrificing, self, a sacrificial desire. It's of great importance to him. Um, let's take a look at Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for their good. We already read that, so I won't finish it. But like, God works all things together for your good. And Romans 8, 32. And he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? Mm-hmm. So I think that builds the case pretty clear. You know, there's a lot more we could get into, but we only have so much time. But I think that makes the case like God desires your well-being. He's willing to freely give all things. He gave the most important thing. He came to earth and died. God came to earth and died. Like that's just crazy. Like I was in a conversation the other day and we were talking, I was talking with someone and the greatest miracle that can happen, we were saying, is that, you know, someone come to Christ, someone give up their sin, but, you know, it might not technically be a miracle because a miracle is something that breaks the natural order of things, but the greatest miracle that ever happened is that God came to earth and died for people. Anyways, um, element number two, God has a fatherly enjoyment of you as a person. Uh, Let's take a quick look at Proverbs 3, verse 12. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father in the son in whom he delights. Even when God, if God's chastising you and you feel like, oh, God must be displeased with me, he's chastising me. The son in whom he delights. God has an enjoyment of his children. As we'll get into in a second, an unconditional enjoyment. And we'll go into a bit more of uh, what that means. Um, Also, Psalm 149, verse 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Uh, Psalm 149, verse 4. Thank you. And I think the biggest thing that shows God's fatherly enjoyment of his children is the prodigal son. Mm-hmm. Uh, we may or may not read that later on in the sermon, depending on how much time we have. And then the third element, God has a desire to have personal fellowship with you. We already read John 17, 1 through 3, so we'll just take a quick look at John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Like, God wants personal fellowship with you. It's not just that he has desire for your well-being. It's not just that he enjoys you. He also wants fellowship. You have to have all three to have a complete picture of God's love. If one of them is missing, you don't have a complete picture of God's love for you. So, also, I want to talk about the quality of God's love for you. It's very important that you get those three elements 
Um, those are all important parts of God's love for you, but that's just the nature of his love. Now let's get into the quality of his love. All three of those things are unconditional. Um, so let's, I'm going to go through each one and point out how it's unconditional. Sacrificial desire for your well-being is unconditional. Um, obviously, we didn't earn it, so nothing we can do can take it away. God died for us while we were still sinners. And like, he didn't just die for you. We can kind of think sometimes, oh, God died for me, but he knew I would repent or that he would bring me to repent. And no, God died for you knowing all the sins you'd commit thereafter. And he chose to do it anyway. There's nothing you can do that's going to change God's sacrificial commitment to your well-being. Your well-being might not be what you think it is. God has the right idea of what your well-being actually is, but he is sacrificially committed to it. God's fatherly enjoyment of you is unconditional. So, um, as we know from other verses in the scripture, there's things we can do by our lifestyle that may please God more or please God less. But at the core of it, um, there's a level of fatherly enjoyment that he just has anyways. Oh, let's read the prodigal song. Yeah. <laughs> I also know Dan Hull's going to mention the prodigal son in his sermon, but it's worth hearing again and again. Um, and Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. There he squandered his property in reckless living. And he had, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in his country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him in the field to feed pigs. You should go back and listen to John Gray's sermon on the prodigal son. Like feeding pigs is the lowest of the low jobs. Like he, he wrecked his financial life. He had like nothing. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. This is what we're like in our sin. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him and said to him, Father, well, and he said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and put shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Um, like he did a bunch of things that would be displeasing things to a father. And it's not like his father um, 
Denton know that he did those things. Like, I'm sure he wasn't happy his son squandered his inheritance or basically told him, you know, I care about me getting your money. I, I wish you were dead. Like, for more context, you should listen to John Gray's sermon on the prodigal son. But he wasn't happy his son did those things. Like, our behavior does affect God's pleasure to a degree. But he still had unconditional delight in his son. <laughs> He celebrated when his son returned. He was so happy. There is a strong, strong level of unconditional delight that God has in you if you're a child of God. And I think, you know, the prodigal son also shows God's desire to fellowship with his children is also unconditional. The prodigal son couldn't have gone off and sinned so much that, like, his father would have been like, nope, stay in that other country. Don't come back. I don't want to fellowship with you anymore. Like, he squandered everything. There was nothing else left to squander. But... His father still desired fellowship with him. That's not something we can break. We can't break God's desire to fellowship with us. So all three elements of God's love are unconditional. Also, all three of them are obviously genuine and sincere. God's a God of truth. He doesn't lie. He doesn't fake things. He has no reason to. He has no one to impress This is genuinely how God feels. This is genuinely what's in the heart of God. The last quality about it I want to talk about is God's love is too great to fully know. Let's take a look at Ephesians 3, 17 and 19 through 19. So this is something, um, Paul is writing to the Ephesians and he's telling them what he prays for them because Paul prays for the Ephesians a lot. Um, But he's saying, I pray to God and Father uh, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge and to be filled with all the fullness of God. So that's a funny little statement, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. But, um, so I wanna get a little bit into the Greek words that Paul uses there. So, I wish I would've made a slide for this, but oh well. Um, The Greek word to know, or to know the love, um, Paul uses the word gnosko which is an experiential knowing, or even an intimate knowing. It's the same word that was used and Adam knew his wife Eve. Um, And then the term knowledge surpasses knowledge. That word is gnosis, which is like an intellectual understanding or comprehension. So Paul is praying that we would experience or know experientially, know intimately, the love of God, which is too great to 
to fully grasp intellectually. So it's important you know not only the three elements that comprise God's love for his children, but you know the quality of that love. So that's our goal we start out with, of what we are to believe about God's love. And just because I think it helps to get a good understanding of what something is, it's when defining something, it's also good to talk about what it isn't. So I made a list of four things that God's love isn't that sometimes we tend to think it is. Number one, God's love isn't malicious. Um, malicious means like having ill will or desiring to harm, desiring somebody's harm. When God says don't have malice, he means don't desire bad things for other people. God always desires our well-being as we looked at. He never desires bad things for us. When he disciplines us, he's disciplining the children in whom he delights. He never desires our harm. He desires to help us grow. Um, Two other things. God's love isn't impatient and it's not resentful. And these are things we tend to struggle with thinking like, Oh, God's so sick, I screwed up for the 10,042nd time today. Like, you know, God, God's love is patient. And he doesn't get resentful towards us no matter how many times we sin. And it's a lot. The prodigal father wasn't resentful. Uh, let's quickly look at 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 5. Love is patient. God's love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. So next time we'll get into the like actual objections we hold, which is why we hang on to our wrong beliefs about God's love. But just to throw it out there in case you, like I do, struggle with thinking God's irritable and resentful towards you, God's love is not irritable or resentful. Um, and last and very important, God's love is not indifferent. God's love is so much the opposite of indifferent. Um, there's two verses I want to use for pointing this out. Uh, Luke 12, 7. Christ talking to the 12 disciples. He may have been talking to a crowd as well. Why, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, for you are of more value than many sparrows. And he's talking to them about like their anxieties about not having enough food. But God even gives food to the sparrows. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Like that's so much the opposite of indifference. Sometimes we think, oh, God's off in heaven, sitting on his throne, not thinking about me. Like he thinks about you enough that he counted the hairs on your head. I don't think you've ever counted the hairs on your head. I've never counted the hairs on anyone's head. And lastly, uh, 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Like God says, 
throughout the scriptures to take all of our anxieties before him in prayer because he cares for us. God is not indifferent about the things you're anxious about, even if they're silly things, even if I'm anxious about like, I get anxious about some really silly things. Um, and God wants me to come to him in prayer about them. If I'm just really anxious that I'm going to burn my pizza rolls in the microwave, if that's something I'm sincerely struggling with, then God wants me to come before him. That isn't something I struggle with, but a lot of our anxieties are really silly. But God wants us to come before him anyways. His love is not indifferent. It says, cast your all, all your anxieties on him. It doesn't say, just cast you know, the important ones, the ones that are logical. <laughs> like, all your anxieties. God cares for you. His love is not indifferent. Uh, so I just want to like re-emphasize what, what we are to believe about uh, God's love. If we can just go to the next slide. Um, if you haven't written these down, hopefully you did. If you haven't, either I'll give you a minute to write them down or take a picture of it on your phone. But this is something you need to think about. This is something you need to have in your head is your goal for thinking about God's love for you. And like we talked about at the beginning of the sermon, how well you know God's love affects every area of your life probably more than you think. Definitely more than you think. And um, if you struggle with any of these, like we all do, you probably have some inner objections. We'll talk about that next week. Um, conclusion, kind of just some summaries. Um, so God wants us to know his love experientially. And just in summary, that's something we need to fight for. It's not something that comes passively. Like the essence of sin is to doubt God. Sin isn't something you overcome passively. You're going to have struggles with God's love for you, if you're human, and they won't be overcome passively. But really what I want to get to, I think a lot of us struggle with this more than we think we do. I think a lot of us struggle with this a lot more than we see, and it's affecting our lives more than we think it is. And next week... Next time I speak, we'll talk about specific objections. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time to come before you, to hear from your word, to, to come to know you deeper, Lord. We pray that you would work knowledge of you into our minds and into our hearts, and we would really pursue knowing you more in our daily lives. We pray that you would just fill us with knowledge, experiential and intimate knowledge of your love, Lord. We pray that we would comprehend the height and width and depth and the greatness of your love for us. We pray that it would change our lives and who we are as a church. And we pray that your spirit would cause this to happen. And we thank you for your grace and love and amen.